You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Welcome to this series, this overview. I have to laugh because when I was asked to cover these 40 chapters of family history in a 20-ish minute sermon, I, like our great mother, Sarah, laughed (laughs) with tears. (laughs) There's a lot of material to cover. And truthfully, there's no way to do all the stories in uh, the rest of Genesis, kind of justice in this setting. Um, So this will be a very broad overview And of course, I have to say, my second thought was about timing patriarchs on Father's Day. If nothing else, after reading these stories, you'll feel much better about your family. (laughs) So there you go. Well, these are um, rich accounts, and I hope that we'll all take the time to read these stories um, this week, not just to find uh, more about what happened to them, but so that God can open our hearts and our minds to understand more about what can happen to us, to see. Can God do stuff like that again? Can God bring faith out of the barren womb of our unbelief? Can God breathe life into a lifeless marriage or restore a broken relationship? Can God bring viable work out of unemployment or new friendships out of transition? Given that three of the matriarchs struggled with infertility, We can honestly say that the story of the patriarchs and matriarchs of Genesis 12 through 50 is a story about barrenness and promise of blessing and the struggle to believe in the face of waiting. These stories are your story, my story, our neighbor's story. And they remind us that it's God's nature to give life and that God loves to take what looks and feels empty and barren to us and infuse it with life that changes us in the deepest of ways. I used to think that God would solve my problems, but in 30-some years as a follower of Jesus, I've become convinced that God is less interested in changing our circumstances and perhaps more interested in changing us, creating life in us that transforms us into the people that God intends for us to be. And it's when we understand just how blessed we are that we are able to extend our hands to bless others in return. And that's really the story that we hear today. Understand, too, that these themes of barrenness and promise and struggle to believe God's promise are, and blessing are woven throughout the whole of Scripture, the Old and the New Testaments. So while the story today of Sarai and Abram, as they wonder if they can conceive in their old age, is, seems in itself something... We'll see later that Elizabeth and Sarah walk a similar, or uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah walk a similar journey as they anticipate the birth of John the Baptist around the time of Jesus' birth. Because if God is a God who creates life in closed wombs, then perhaps God can create life in a virgin's womb and even call forth a savior from a tomb. So as we start, We'll do a little review from last week. Remember in Genesis 1 and 2, God spoke life out of barren space, nothingness. And God promised abundant life to all of creation. By chapter 3, humanity struggled to believe that promise. And that great struggle of faith created a chasm between humankind and God. And by the time we get to Genesis 6, humanity is such a wreck that God seriously wonders if this whole venture wasn't a big mistake. 
All of this comes to a head in the story of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, where we see humanity hell-bent on creating for themselves a tower to prove that they are equal to God. And God mercifully scatters them in order to create some space to start over. Time for a new strategy. And that's where we pick up the story today. So here in chapter 12, God chooses one family through whom God chooses to rescue all families. So as you're able, would you grab that Bible and stand with me, turning to Genesis 12. And let's read together verses 1 through just the first half of that fifth verse. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And will you join me in prayer? Prepare our hearts, O Lord, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Barrenness, promise, the struggle to believe, blessing, There's a reason we call it faith. It's amazing to me that as I've been digging into these themes, I've heard them all week long in pieces of conversations. From her former colleague who's waiting to hear if she got the job she interviewed for. She's been looking for over a year and struggles to believe that there's ever going to be meaningful work for her. Or my friend from seminary who believes he was called into ministry but after a painful divorce and then losing his job wonders, If only I knew that this was really the right path. The story of the patriarchs and matriarchs helps us recognize God's hand at work in human life so that when we face empty spaces like these, the in-between of God's call and promises and the fulfillment of these promises, that we won't lose faith. A few things to keep in mind as we move forward. The first is that we have to discipline ourselves a little bit to read as if we don't know the rest of the story, to put ourselves in Abram and Sarai's shoes. So for example, in verse 30 in chapter 11, and I'd encourage you to keep that Bible open because we might be running around a little bit. We have 50 chapters to cover, people. (laughs) But in verse 30 in chapter 11, we read that Sarai is barren. God's just made a promise to Abram that's in direct conflict with this reality. And we shouldn't let go of that tension too quickly. The second thing to remember is that we have come to know our God as a God of relationship, a God who longs to know us and to be known by us. 
So as we read these stories, we catch the beginning of this process. And we should be asking what God says and what God does and how does that show us how God longs to relate to humanity? How does God want to be known? So are you ready? As he said, the writer sets up our attention right away when we read that Abram is 75 when God calls him and grants him this promise. His wife Sarai is barren. Clearly the promise of God comes with a high price tag on the faith department. But Abram's only obligation, as far as I can tell, is this call and promise. It's to believe. It's something that he will demonstrate by a capacity to leave what is familiar and to follow a plan that essentially is meant to unfold on the go. And that's it. Now, personally, I've always found this to be a little bit dicey. I mean, if God doesn't tell you exactly where you're going, how do you know when you've arrived? And this promise of descendants, babies are usually pretty hard to miss. So surely there should be some evidence that God's at work. But years, years passing. They're still wandering, and there's still no baby. And the clock ticks in the midst of God's silence. And Abram and Sarai start to doubt, just like any of us start to doubt. Who can blame them? I've sat with many friends through infertility, and let's be honest, timing is everything when this is your reality. The silence of waiting is often a gap into which we pour all of our insecurities. And usually the longer we wait, the worse we've made the outcome to be. Really in any situation, let alone something like this. In working with students for years, I cannot tell you how many times my students would go from yeah, she hasn't called. I think she has an exam this week, too. She hates me. Wow. Wow, that's kind of fast. We're brutal on ourselves in the face of silence. So it's into Abram and Sarai's long, silent wait that God inserts a covenant, a sign, a seal, that this promise is more than just an idea, and God has not forgotten and the scene unfolds in chapter 15, which we heard so beautifully rendered in the Jesus storybook. In this act, Abram and Sarai and the fate of their descendants will be inextricably bound to the God who's called them and given them the promise of descendants and blessing. And God even gives Abram a visual. Count the stars if you can. That's what I'm talking about, brother. The silence has ended. And in the description that follows in chapter 15, we see something that's called a suzerain treaty. And just like you pull an all-nighter or you throw your back out, the way that this culture would seal a deal would be to cut a covenant. It's an easy story to overlook, but it really matters. So let's take a, a closer peek at this. Let me read for you. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You've given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. 
And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and count the stars if you're able to count them. And then he said, so shall your descendants be. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And God said, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Ew. Now, in Abram's day, there are essentially two kinds of covenants. The first is called a parity covenant, which would have been made between two equal parties. And the second is what we see here. It's a suzerain covenant, a covenant made between a king and a lord and a subject or a vassal. Usually, the king would make a treaty with a subject by dictating the terms of an agreement that would be of greater benefit to the king, usually, than the uh, vassal. And the covenant would be ratified in the manner we see here. Animals sliced down the middle, open halves displayed. And then the two making the covenant would walk between those pieces, reiterating the terms of their agreement as they did, as if to say to one another, and if I fail to hold up my end of the bargain, I'm as good as this dead meat. And then the other would say, and if I fail to hold my end of the bargain up, I'm as good as this dead meat. It's kind of a gut-wrenching visual, and I'm sure it cemented the gravity of the treaty in the minds of those involved, especially the subject. And we might shudder past the scene and write it off as kind of Game of Thrones-esque, except for one important detail. Look closely at the verse that follows, starting in 12, and then we'll jump to 17. As the sun was winding down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Whoa, 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 whoa. Walking between the carcasses to ratify the treaty are not Abram and God, but a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. You may recognize them next time we get together because that's the presence of God leading the people of Israel out of the desert or through the desert, into the wilderness. God ratifies a covenant with Abram, but but does so by standing in for him, thereby substituting himself in the obligation of consequences for any failure that Abram or his family or any of his descendants might have in upholding that covenant. This is not a God who will use people as a means to his ends, but rather will himself be a means to the ends of his people a means to that promise of life and blessing. This is a God who will knowingly and willingly take on the full consequence of human sin, even to the point of death. Do you see the shadow of the cross? I find it both comforting and a little disturbing that immediately following this covenant of unbelievable grace comes the story of Ishmael. Faith is hard. And so often in painful places of waiting, we come up with our own plans for salvation. So it shouldn't surprise us that even in the face of grace, 
and promise, Abram and Sarai fashioned their own solution, a way to help God's will along. Abram's already clearly been thinking about this, even as he mentioned Eliezer of Damascus or a slave uh, or a child born to a slave in his house. He's already got the wheels churning. And this is how it looks in his head. Well, maybe it wasn't about Sarai. Maybe it was just about me. So what if Hagar serves as Sarai's surrogate, and then any child she has can be the heir to God's promise? Yeah, yeah, that's a great plan. Let's grab onto that. I remember studying the story of Hagar and Ishmael with a bunch of graduate students years ago as we explored the topic of how to finish well, even as Renee mentioned that we're trying to finish the year well. And one of the students in the group got a little embarrassed and he kind of laughed. And he told the story, actually he told story after story of what he had called the little Ishmaels in his life. Solutions that he had created to kind of help God along only to create more conflict for, and trouble for himself. Who hasn't done that? If you, if you can say that you haven't, you're lying. I'm sure of it. <laughs> so at the end of that study, we really concluded that the key to finishing well is learning how to wait well. And I think that we, as children of God's promise, have a lot to learn in learning how to wait well. You know, last weekend I was at a friend's house looking through pictures of her recent trip to the Middle East. And she said that the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron, where Abraham is said to be buried, was by far the most tense and heavily guarded place that she visited anywhere on that trip. She said that they have separate entrances for Arabs and for Jews, heavy security, heavily guarded. Clearly, the descendants of Abraham are still at odds and the consequences of Abram and Sarai's choices still impact us to this day. And sadly, they won't be the only siblings in this family to fight. What if Sarai and Adam, or Abram had waited? How different would our world be today, I kind of wonder. But I love how God responds to their failure to trust. As George reminded us last week, our failure is never the last word. So rather than berate and punish and disqualify them from the promise, God instead breathes new life into them in two very real ways. First, God changes their names in a way to reflect the new thing that's happening in their lives. Abram becomes Abraham, the father of a multitude, and Sarai becomes Sarah, the princess. And then God tells them that indeed Sarah will have a son. And she laughs. Of course she laughs. How could she not? Abraham's 100 and she's 90. She's not just barren anymore. She's sort of beyond barren, if you know what I mean. But that's, that's the kind of nothing that God loves to create with. It's his favorite agent, his favorite medium of artistry. God has waited until there's absolutely no way that Abraham and Sarah can, by the work of their own hands, make the promise of God come to pass for themselves. No credit to you, friends. It's all about God. And that's just it. The promise is all about them, but it's not about them. I mean, it's about them as recipients of grace, 
and promise and hope and blessing. But the responsibility for making that happen is in God's hands, not theirs, not ours. Their work, I dare say, is our work. It's how to wait well, how to receive God's work on our behalf by being willing to follow and then bless the socks off everybody as we go. That's it. That's it. Only God can speak life out of nothingness. Last week, I went to a friend's daughter's graduation party, and we sat around and compared how very different our lives were today from where they were four years ago. Then I remember sitting in her house, whining about how much nothing we had. She had just drawn the line in the sand with her alcoholic husband and asked him to get help. And he responded by moving out, taking his financial support with him and leaving her with a house payment, kids, and a lot of past due bills. I, on the other hand, was becoming a professional couch surfer. Unemployed, far longer than I had anticipated, I just had to rent my house out because I couldn't even afford to make my mortgage payments. It was a hard season. And we cried a lot as we struggled to hang on. And it seemed like there was so little to hang on to. And I recall writing in my journal at that time, really God, really? How much more nothing do you need? What are you doing? What's taking so long? Can you spell it out for me? How long, O oh Lord, will you be silent? Both our lives look pretty different today, and I'm grateful for that time, although I have no desire to return to that place. Like my colleague JJ, I often will say, I would have rather read the book. <laughs> but that experience made me more gracious with others and far more generous. I know, you're thinking, really? You should have seen me before. <laughs> Life out of nothingness, blessed to be a blessing. We don't have time to go into the rest of the stories, but I will offer you this. The gift of faith that we get from the matriarchs and patriarchs can be learned if you watch their hands through the stories. There's a strong human tendency to feel desperate that God's promises aren't enough. And in our fear, we grab and we push at one another. Isaac's son, Jacob, is born grabbing his older brother's ankle. And he'll spend his childhood scheming how to take his birthright and then lying in order to gain his father's blessing. And Jacob will go on to have 12 sons who do their own fair share of pushing and grabbing as well. They grab at who's best, who's the most love, who's the favorite. And their fear and mistrust almost drive them to murder their brother Joseph. But instead, they throw him into a well and then eventually they hand him off to slave traders to become a slave in Egypt. And if that were the whole story, it would be a sad, sad tale. But there are pivotal moments in the story worth noting. Because one night as Jacob grabs onto God, and he wrestles with God until dawn, and that encounter changes everything, including his name, which becomes Israel, meaning literally the one who wrestles with God. How interesting that all the people thereafter would be known as the ones who wrestle with God, the people of Israel. And if you watch Israel's hands from that point forward, they are extended to embrace and to bless. Embracing his, and blessing his brother Esau, and embracing and blessing his children in forgiveness for what they did. 
Even Joseph will be able to embrace his brothers despite their plot to kill him. And he too will bless their families and their descendants and even extend that blessing by protecting Egypt from famine. Through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Go ahead, read the stories. From barrenness to grace and blessing. God calls us, God makes a way for us despite our failures, and God blesses us so that we can bless each other. That's our story, it's our family's story, it's my story, and it's yours. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.